Amen. As we begin this morning, just want to take a moment um, as uh, Pastor Wes and I discussed uh, as elders, but also as a church that we recognize and celebrate um, what has happened in our country. Uh, for uh, Since 1970s, when the Roe v. Wade decision was decided by the Supreme Court, um, there has been an American Holocaust that has happened in our nation where millions of children who were murdered in the womb have gone unrecognized and unremembered by our culture at large. But we're thankful that the prayers of the church and the prayers of those many who have worked in, uh, in the ministries outside of abortion clinics and in the pro-life movement, um, that God has answered those prayers. And we see that as a good thing and a thankful thing. You know, the Word tells us in the book of Psalms, David is writing and he says, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb, and I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, yet when there was not one of them. The Bible is very clear that life is life from the moment of conception. And to take a life at any point, from conception to adulthood or any point, is an evil and wicked thing before God. And we rejoice that this has happened, and we pray that God will continue to allow that to spread further. You know, what has happened in our country does not mean that abortion is illegal everywhere. It just means the right has passed back to the states to make those decisions, and so that did happen And so now there are states where it has become illegal, but there are still states where it is legal. Um, And those states where it is legal are rejoicing in the fact that it is legal. You'd only have to spend just a small amount of time watching the response to the news to really understand this has nothing to do with a woman's right to choose about health care and more about people's willingness or want to choose to just be able to do what they want and not have to face consequences. And so we pray that the Lord will continue to allow bold people, and we as a church pray that we will have the opportunity to stand up boldly for the cause of life, to continue to see abortion um, outlawed and made illegal here in our nation. Um, As we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, uh, just a couple things. We're going to pray for that, but also pray for, remember to pray for uh, Pastor Ben and Rebecca and the children. And uh, this is their first Sunday up there at North Point Chapel in Albion, New York. And so we want to continue to remember them week in and week out as they establish their ministry there. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, for your answered prayers. Lord, we trust and know that your hand is providential. And Lord, that nothing happens by chance or accident. And Lord, we are so overwhelmed Lord, what has happened? Lord, I must admit the weakness of my faith. That even though I know countless numbers of Christians, we have prayed for this day for years and years and years. Lord, I I did not believe that it could happen. But Lord, we are thankful that you don't go on our faith, but on your sovereign will and purpose. And so, Father, as a church, we pray, Lord, that we would not miss the opportunity that we have here. Lord, to stand, continue standing for the cause of life. And Lord, to continue pushing for the cause of life. 
But Father, also looking for opportunities that we may minister to, Lord, women who have had abortions in the past. Lord, that we may minister to them and help them to understand that, Father, all that, though that it was a sin, that, Lord, that there's forgiveness and grace and mercy available in you. And, Lord, to help educate others about the truth of life. Lord, help us to, as a church and as individuals, Father, to continue in this cause. Lord, we pray for Pastor Ben and for Rebecca and for the children this morning. Lord, we pray for North Point Chapel. Lord, we pray for the work that you have already begun there and the work that you will be doing in the future. We pray, God, that your glory might be manifested in that town. Lord, that the gospel might go forth boldly and that that church would grow and be a beacon of light and hope to that community. We pray that you would encourage them as they settle in there. Lord, that you would bring along even more like-minded people to join that fellowship. And Lord, that that community of faith would grow. Father, we pray for ourselves that we would continue week in and week out to seek your face, to seek your will for us as individuals, to seek your will for us as a church. Lord, that we might do the same here in Waynesville. Lord, we might be a beacon of hope to the, of the gospel to this city. And the Lord, that this city might be transformed by the work that the members of this church are doing in our jobs and in our schools, in our day-to-day activities, and in the work that we gather here on Sunday morning. May we honor and glorify you in all that we do. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that we may listen with attentive hearts to hear what the Spirit would say to us today. Lord, help us to not leave the same today as when we came in. Lord, may you grow us, may you stretch us, may you comfort us, and Father, if necessary, may you convict us and correct us, that we may be more conformed into the image of Jesus. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name, amen. I invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, we're going to start just a short series. It'll take us just a few months uh, to work through this letter that Paul has written to the church at Philippi. The book of Philippians, this morning we're just going to be looking at the first two verses as we introduce this book, introduce this passage of Scripture. So I would encourage you to find your way there, and as you do, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul and Timothy bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. What we find in this passage of Scripture, in this book, is a really special letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Now, the church at Philippi was obviously in the city of Philippi, and this city was an important city in eastern Macedonia, which was located in northeastern Greece. Philippi was in a strategic location. It was the the main trade route to Asia Minor. Uh, It was kind of in the narrow part of a mountain, and so the road that ran there was a a frequently traveled road, so much so that it was known as the the Via Ignatia in Paul's day. It was the Roman road that the Romans would travel back and forth on. Early on, it was known for the gold mines that were located there. It had caught the eye of Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great. And so he annexed the city around 356 B.C., 
And they built a small village there. And he renamed it Philippi after his own name. The Romans conquered Macedonia in the second century BC. And really the city remained in relative obscurity until around 42 BC when there was a crucial battle in Roman history. And it was at this battle of Philippi that Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius. It was the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. And after this happened, they began to settle many of their army veterans there in the city of Philippi. They would send them out from Rome over to Philippi and establish them there just as a safeguard. Uh, They would put them there to protect the city, to make sure that nothing happened to it, to keep that trade route open. Uh, But also what this happened was is they established that as actually a Roman colony. And even though it was outside of the city of Rome, outside of Italy, when it was established here as a Roman colony, what this allowed for them to do was to experience all the benefits of being Roman citizens. Uh, They had the language, they had the customs, they had the dress, they even began to build their, their buildings in such a way as resembled the buildings that were in Rome. So it was basically like a Rome away from Rome, if you would say it in such a cliche way. But they were given this right in order to establish there. And so Paul is writing this letter to this church that is in Philippi. And what's interesting about this whole circumstance is the way that Paul ends up in this city. He ends up in this city in a kind of an unusual way that Brother Kelly read for us there in Acts chapter 16. Paul is attempting to go to Asia and God delayed him on several times in several different circumstances. But then Paul had this, what they call the Macedonian call, this vision at night where he saw a man from Macedonia beckoning him to come. And it was because of that call that Paul went in obedience to the city of Philippi. And arriving there, Paul began to do as he always did. He began to preach. And there wasn't a church established there yet. So on the, on, on the Sabbath day, Paul just stood up at the city gates and began to preach and proclaim the gospel. And if you go back to Acts chapter 16, what you'll find is that very early on, some prominent people came to faith in Christ. The first was a woman named Lydia. And Lydia was a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart, the scripture tells us. And then her household was saved. And really what was interesting is then there was a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. She was able to to foretell and she made profit by doing fortune telling. And she came and was saved. And then the masters of this slave girl, they saw that now their profit was lost because she wasn't going to be able to work for them anymore. She wasn't going to be able to do this fortune telling anymore. And they began to be angry and, and, and angry at, at Paul and Silas and dragged them out of the city. It says, these men are throwing our city into confusion. It's interesting, I think, whenever we read the book of Acts to understand how transformative the gospel was in the places that it went. The gospel did not go in softly and quietly, but the gospel goes in boldly and powerfully. And it begins to transform the lives of people who have never heard. It begins to transform the lives of people who are far from God, those who are distant from God, but also even those as, as who were seeking God in a sense of a way. As Lydia said, she was a worshiper of God, but she didn't know the truth yet. So brothers and sisters, when we go out proclaiming the gospel, we are doing the same. We're proclaiming the gospel to those who think they're seeking God, seeking some type of of deity. They're they're desiring to know, but we also can reach those who are far from God. Don't ever be discouraged in your evangelistic efforts when you see someone who is totally, in in, in their mind, has totally rejected God. They, They deny the existence of God. They hate God. They cast Him out. Because God's Spirit is powerful enough to reach even those. And so, 
Paul begins to do these great works in this city. Again, there's no church established here. He's just coming in and preaching the gospel. But immediately after this, Paul is arrested and they're thrown into prison. And this is, again, one of the most familiar stories in the book of Acts because they're thrown into prison. And what do they begin to do? They begin to sing hymns of praise to God. Now, that's important to remember because we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But can you imagine, you know, singing hymns of praise to God? Now, Pastor West goes into the jails on a regular basis here in Haywood County and Jackson County. And what we need to understand is that jails today, or prisons today, are not like the prisons of old. You go into a jail today, they've got television they can watch. They've got computers. They can get on the internet and send emails back and forth. They can get books brought to them. They, in, in the grand scheme of things, besides the fact that they can't go outside the walls of the prison, they live in relative comfort. They have three meals a day. They can go outside and exercise. They've lost the freedom to be out in the outside world, but they have all the main benefits of life, plumbing, electricity, everything else. But in the days when Paul and Silas were thrown into prison, it was not so. Most of the time, these prisons were very dark and dingy and dank places. Uh, they were thrown into the stocks, having their feet fastened. They were usually refuse and, and, and filth all over the ground and rats crawling around everywhere. So I want you to put yourself in this situation. They've just arrived into town. They begin to be faithful. This, God has called us here. We've heard this Macedonian call. We've seen this vision. And they come in and they begin to preach the gospel. And excitement happens because Lydia is converted. This slave girl comes to faith in Christ and is set free. And then they're thrown into prison. But what do they begin to do? It says they begin to sing hymns of praise to God. And the next part of that verse says that the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I have to be careful to not stop right here and preach a separate sermon. But brothers and sisters, people see us in the midst of difficult circumstances. And the way that we respond to those circumstances tells them everything they need to know about who we are and what we genuinely believe about God. And so here is Paul in this circumstance. They just decide this is just a great time for for a choir singing. So they begin to sing hymns of praises to God. And it says, suddenly there became a great earthquake. And the prison was shaking and all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. And the jailer awoke and he was about to kill himself because he thought everyone had escaped. But Paul cries out and says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. I've always found it interesting that none of the rest of the prisoners left as well. Everybody's chains fell off. But they're all still there. And this prisoner, I mean, excuse me, this guard rushing in and seeing what has happened after hearing the praises that Paul and Silas have been singing and witnessing this event, rushes in and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Revival has broken out in the city of Philippi. So God has begun a great work in this town, this important Roman colony. Now Paul here plants this church on his second missionary journey as he's moving through and he would come back here several times. He would actually leave Luke here at a time, and Timothy was serving here as this church as well. And this church was a church that although they didn't have a lot of financial resources, they, didn't have a, they weren't a, a strong church in the sense of, of finances, but they were faithful to continue to support Paul. He, they continued to send him money and desiring to help him in the work of the labor. Paul talks about this in, later on in the book because... He was amazed at their faithfulness towards his ministry. He was encouraged by their faithful prayers and their continued support. 
Now, obviously, as we talk about this, this was written by the Apostle Paul. It says it very clearly there in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now, Timothy is not an author of this book because Paul refers to him in the third person later on in chapter uh, 3. But this book is written by Paul. It's, it's really an unquestionable authorship. It was not until the 19th century when a few liberal scholars began to try to question the authorship of this book. But the early church fathers well affirmed that this book was written by Paul. It was a letter that he wrote there to the church at Ephesus. Now, the question is, why is he writing this letter? Because we know from other letters that Paul wrote that he kind of had a, a really a, a typical manner of what he was doing. Most of the time he was writing to correct doctrinal issues. When he writes to the church at Corinth, there's sin inside the church. There are issues that have arisen, and he's writing to them as have a pastoral heart, but also with a pretty direct confrontation to those individuals uh, that they might change what they're doing and correct the issues that are going on in the church. He writes to the church at Galatia and because of doctrinal issues that have come up there. They're veering away from their first love. They're veering away from the truth that was given to them and following after, as Paul calls it, another gospel. But here, Paul is writing from a different mindset. This book has been called the Hymn of Joy. It's a very practical and personal letter. It's Paul really pouring out his heart to the church at Philippi and the gratitude of what they have done for him. We'll find through this book the word joy used four times, the word rejoice used eight times, the word glad used three times. And it's really a book that's focused on the mind of the believer. Because we have to understand that what occupies our mind is really who we are truly as a person. Now, we can live however we want to on the outside. We're, we're really good as Americans to put on a mask, right? We can blend in wherever we are. How many times has somebody walked up to you and you say, they ask you, how are you doing today? And it's like, oh, I'm good. But really, you're not good. Really, you're not well on the inside. Things are going on, but we put on a face, right? We pretend that everything's okay. But on the inside, we're distraught. But it even comes more clear in the area of our spiritual life. Somebody can come to church and they can dress nice. They can fix their hair, put their makeup on if you're a woman. They can come to church and do all of those things. Sing, raise their hands, open their Bible, read a passage of Scripture. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a Christian. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're truly converted. What Paul is going to help us understand in this book is that what is in our mind, what we're focused on, how we are actually living and conversating with ourselves on the inside bears the true testimony of who we are in Christ. And how do we think as Christians? Right? Because this is a question that a lot of people ask. And we think about what just happened this last week. We think about other things that could be coming in the future. When events happen in our society, how do we view those things as Christians first? Because when things happen in the news, when things happen in government, when things happen societally, our first response should not be, okay, well, here's how I view this as an American citizen. The first thing should be is, how do I view this as a Christian? How do I understand what's happening in light of God's word and God's law and God's commands for our life? And what Paul will help us to see here is that what it means to have the mind of the believer and have a focus on the scriptures is that we live our lives in Christian joy. 
We live our lives in Christian joy. Now, joy is different than happiness. Happiness is subject to the circumstances that we're going through. If you walked out of your house this morning on your way to church and there sat in your car, I mean your driveway, a brand new car with a bow on top, you'd get very happy, right? You'd be overwhelmed with happiness. And you walk back inside and you brush your teeth and put your clothes on to come to church and you hear a crash and you walk outside and a tree has then fallen right over top of that brand new car. Your happiness instantly goes away. Happiness is subject to the circumstances that we walk through, but true joy that is found in Christ is not affected by our circumstances. Because joy in Christ means that it is about what He has done in us. And there's no circumstance in life that can change who we are in Christ. There's no difficulty, there's no high, there's no low that changes who we are in Christ, that He has come and He has died and He has risen again. And if we are in Him, our sins are forgiven. We're joint heirs with Jesus. We have everything that God has promised to us and nothing can take those things away. That's why Paul, sitting in the midst of the prison in Philippi, could sing praises to God. Paul probably wasn't happy emotionally to be in prison, but his joy was full because of who he knew he was in Christ. And brothers and sisters, we will walk through difficult seasons of life. As Christians, we are not immune to the curse of sin in this world. Some of us will be sick. Some of us might be very sick. Some of us might die young. Some of us might have an accident that happens to us. Some of us may lose our job. We're not, we're not immune to the causes and the effects of sin in this world. But what we are immune to is the loss of joy. We do not lose our joy as believers because it's not based on what we experience in life. It's based on who we are in Christ. It's the reason that thousands upon thousands of Christians before us have gone to martyrdom, praising and glorifying God until they drew their last breath because of the joy that comes from Christ. And so this is Paul's purpose. He's preaching to them. He's encouraging them to know the joy of the Lord. And I thought that as I was Looking through as we were drawing near to the end of the book of Matthew and, and looking at where we we're going next, I thought, what a perfect time for us as a church to read through this book. As we come out of the book of Matthew, and Matthew has so wondrously painted this glorious picture of who Christ is as the Messiah. And we ended there with that crescendo of the Great Commission that now we are to go into all the world. Every single one of us, not just the pastors, not just the deacons, not just the leaders of the church. Every single one of us is to go out in the world and proclaim the gospel. What better encouragement to have for us is how do we have the mind of Christ as we go out into the world? Because that's what we need if we're going to be evangelistic. If we're going to be people who are sharing our faith, we need to understand the mind of Christ and the mind of the believer and the joy that is found therein. Now, through this book, Paul also does address a couple of small things. And he does so in such a way because he, he, he sees some things that could be creeping in. And so he addresses some small issues. It seems that maybe there were some personality issues that were arising in the church. and He addresses those in chapter 2. It seemed that the Judaizers might have been attempting to gain a foothold there. He addresses that in just a few verses at the beginning of chapter 3. And then in the middle of chapter 3, he also addresses 
the rise of antinomianism. The Judaizers were those who tried to teach that you had to be a Christian. The only way you could be a Christian was to follow the old Jewish customs and the law, to be circumcised and to follow all the Old Testament rituals. Antinomianism taught that now because grace has come, you just sin all you want to because then grace can abound all the more. And so Paul just very clearly kind of nipped those things in the bud. He said, brothers and sisters, I'm rejoicing at what God's doing there, but be careful because things can creep in. And we have to do the same. As we go through our journey as a church and as believers, we have to ever be mindful of the things that this world will throw at us at the things that will try to creep in, sometimes very subtly. And the way that we avoid those things is by knowing the truth of God's Word. So that gives us a little background and understanding of this book, what Paul is attempting to do. It's really, again, just this personal, heartfelt letter to this church in thankfulness of what they have done, but to encourage them in the joy that comes in knowing who we are in Christ. I want you to notice in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. What we have here is an example to follow. The first thing I want you to notice, an example to follow. Paul and Timothy. Now we know who Paul is, great apostle, a man whose testimony is well recognized across the board as one of the most beautiful pictures of, of, of God's grace. This man who grew up as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul had the, the opportunity that had he lived his life out, Paul probably would have died a very rich and noble and powerful man because he had the ability to go in and take control of situations. His spiritual knowledge was, was above anyone else at that time. He was one of those that was recognized. And it was really why he became such a threat to the high priests and the Pharisees in the days of the early church because they knew he knows as much as we do, if not more. And he also had the power of the Holy Spirit on his side, which made him a double threat to them. Paul includes Timothy's name here because, as I said earlier, he had helped to plant this church. And so Paul is writing back and he notice what he says here. He says, bond servants of Christ Jesus. This is the example that we should follow. Paul used this term often. Romans chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for God. Both Paul and Timothy had been in captivity before. Paul had been in captivity here in Philippi. This term, bondservant, translated directly, just means slave. It's the word doulos. And it means to be a slave. Paul is saying, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, we don't like to use that terminology in 21st century America. But it's very clear the picture that Paul is painting here. He's saying, I have given up the entirety of my life to the service of my master, King Jesus. Matthew Poole in his commentary says, to be a bondservant, to be a slave of Christ means being holy and perpetually dedicated to his more immediate service in the ministry of reconciliation. God has a purpose. He sent Jesus Christ to come into this world, and Jesus has a purpose. He has given the Great Commission to go on to all the world. We talked about this last week. Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne right now, and He has commissioned us as Christians to go out in the world and to tell everyone to turn to Christ. 
The gospel is, is not a request. The gospel is a command. Repent and be baptized. Repent and turn to God. Brothers and sisters, we must be bold in our declaration. Because the master has told us to go and to tell people that he is king. And we, last week we talked about the illustration of a new king arriving on the throne and sending out his messengers out into all the villages to alert them that a new king is on the throne and that is who they must worship. And in every city, if you go to England, even still today, in a lot of these older towns and hamlets, in the city square, there would be a round pedestal in the middle of town. And that was the place where the herald would go. Whenever there was news for the town to hear, a gentleman arrive into town, he would stand up on that pedestal and he would begin to give the news of the king, give updates from the kingdom. And everyone would stop and they would listen because this was important. That's the reason that the word preach means to herald because we are taking the news of the king to the world that he is on the throne and they are called to come and to worship him. So the master has given us a task, and that task is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so Paul is saying here, we recognize who we are. We are bond servants of Christ. We are slaves of God. Now, it's interesting in this passage, because typically, as Paul did in Romans, he says, Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. So in Romans, Paul is throughout the book of Romans, is one of the richest doctrinal books in all the Bible. Paul lays out this beautiful picture of theology there in the book of Romans. And so he establishes there at the very beginning his apostleship. He, this is who I am. This is who God's called me to be. But notice there, what does he put first? He doesn't say Paul, an apostle, and then he puts a bondservant of Jesus. No, he says first, I am a bondservant. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Because even though Paul was recognized as a great leader in the early church, the most important thing he recognized was his submission under the authority of Jesus. Even though he had been granted authority as a teacher, as an apostle, he submitted himself and knew that everything, the only thing that truly mattered was that he was a slave of Christ. He was totally in the service of his master. His life was no longer his own. But this is not a begrudging service to the Lord. We have a tendency to think in our mind because of chattel slavery here in America and because of the way that slaves were oftentimes treated. We have this tendency to think that if to use the word slave means this begrudging and dismal kind of thing. But Paul says, no, I am happily a servant of King Jesus. He served with joy and with gratitude because of what God had done for him. And because of the promises that God had given, Paul was excited about this. He says, I'm the property of Jesus Christ. And the reason this is important for us to understand this morning, brothers and sisters, is because this is who we are. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a bondservant. You are a slave of Christ Jesus. Your life is no longer your own. Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. This is not an optional part of the Christian life. We must commit ourselves to the service of King Jesus. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. There's such a temptation in this world to try to draw this narrow line between the world and between service to God. 
And we say, well, Lord, I will give this area of my life to you, but I'm holding this area of my life to myself. I'll give you this, but I won't give you that. If we find ourselves there, we are in disobedience to God. Because Jesus has said that we are His and our lives are no longer our own. So that when He calls, we go. When He says, the answer is, yes, sir. When He forbids, the answer is, yes, sir. We do whatever He tells us to do. And again, brothers and sisters, this is not begrudging. This is joyful. Because we know what God has promised to those who are His. That God is going to do great and miraculous and wonderful things through each of us if we are obedient to Him. Paul says he's a bondservant and he's a slave. He says he's a slave of Christ Jesus. He's the absolute possession of Christ. Think about how marvelously wonderful this is. That we are Christ's possession. That He has bought us with a price. There's really no way to, to, to really fully illustrate this and understand this in our mind. But think if you had saved up the largest amount of money that you had ever saved and you purchased something. You would find great joy in that thing that you had purchased because you had worked hard. You had done all of these things and it is now yours. It's in your possession. But it's just the, Christ that, the price that Christ paid for us is far greater than any amount of money that this world has to offer. He paid for us with his very own life and blood. And we are a valuable possession to Him. He has brought us into the kingdom. And God not only has brought us into the kingdom and into the family, but made us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are Jesus' brothers and sisters. We've been adopted into the family of God. What joy to know that in this world, we are His. That He cares for us. And He watches over us. One commentator said that to be a slave of King Jesus is actually to be a king. Paul says that he's a bond servant of Christ, a slave of his master. So it's an example to follow. This is who we should follow after. Paul is laying this out here because he wants to set this example for the believers there at Philippi. This is how we're to live our lives, as slaves of Christ Jesus. So it's an example to follow. But secondly, I want you to also notice in this passage, Paul gives us a position to cherish. He says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Notice he says in that beginning of that sentence, to all the saints. This this letter was written to every member of the church because we are a family. This is the family of God. It's the church Catholic with a small c. Oftentimes we see that word Catholic and we assume it means the Roman Catholic Church. But throughout church history, the church Catholic means the entire universal church. All of those who are in Christ Jesus. We have brothers and sisters from around the world, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. We are all part of the church and the family of God. But Paul is writing this letter to this particular church. But he says to all of them, no matter from the greatest to the least... It didn't matter who you were in this church, if you were the youngest member or the oldest member, if you were the most spiritually mature or the least spiritually mature. Paul writes to all of them, and he calls them an interesting word there. He says what? To all the saints. Now, if you go out on the streets and you poll people, what is a saint? 
The first thing that's going to immediately come to their mind is what happens inside the Roman Catholic Church. Someone of great significance dies and they are venerated as a saint. That means that they did some great, miraculous, wonderful things in their life or supposedly did so, supposedly performed certain types of miracles or substantive work inside the church. And so they deem them as a saint. They elevate them to a higher position above other believers. But that's not what the word means. The word means to be set apart. The word means those who are set apart. So inside this room this morning, take hope and joy in knowing that you are sitting amongst a room full of saints. I remember we oftentimes, when we would go to college campuses to do evangelism, uh, the, the objections are always the same no matter where you are. And so students would come up to us and, and say, well, you're sinners. I must say, No. And they go, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm, I'm a saint. And immediately, just rage would fill them from head to toe because they think that you're talking about being perfect. And we would quickly clarify, no, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm not sinless, but I'm not who I used to be. I'm not who I used to be before I came to Christ. Now, I used to be that person. I used to be a sinner in, in the sense of that was my life. I still sin. But now I've been made a saint in God because I've been set apart for a purpose. They're not just being set apart for nothing. They're being set apart for a particular purpose. Paul says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In the Old Testament, God had set apart the nation of Israel as his people. He had set them apart as a holy nation. Why? Because he wanted to. Not because they had done anything, not because they had proven themselves, not because they were better than anybody else. God looked out and he said, those people are mine. And he set them apart. Now, Israel rejected Christ. They rejected the Messiah. They turned their back on him. And so God has now said, because they have done that, now I have called myself a new people. And that people is the church. And he says, we have set them apart. I have set them apart as a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And why does Peter, what does he say here? He says, I've done this so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. God has set us apart, not just so that we can isolate ourselves as Christians. There's such a temptation that we can do that. The world, we look out and we see all the bad things happening. And it's very tempting for us to say, well, let's just huddle together as believers and just hope and pray that everything is okay. But God says, I have set you apart for a purpose. And that purpose is to go and to proclaim the truth of him who called you and the one who made you able to be set apart. To be set apart means that we are holy, not sinless, but we are holy in both character and conduct. To be holy does not mean that we don't sin. Brothers and sisters, every single one of us in this room will sin because we are in a fallen world and our bodies have not yet been made perfect. We are going to struggle and fight against sin in this life. But we can be holy in our character and conduct. That means that we strive to live as if we are going to be sinless. We hate our sin. We should try to go and live every single day to sin as little as possible. But we look at our character and at our conduct. How are we living our lives? What is the testimony of who we are? 
Because we've been called out of this world and into Christ. We've been set apart by Him. Notice it says that we are set apart in Christ Jesus. There's something to be understood from that word in, in between saints in Christ Jesus. That we're not set apart in ourselves, but we're set apart in Him. No other religion talks that way. Islam does not say that they are put into Muhammad. Mormons don't say that they're in Joseph, uh, in, in, in the church. They, they don't set those things apart. They would just talk about being obedient. They would just talk about following. But the scriptures here are very clear that we're not just set apart. We're set apart in Christ Jesus. Because we are united in Him, in His resurrected life. One commentator put it this way, when Paul spoke of the Christian being in Christ, he meant that the Christian lives in Christ as a bird in the air, a fish in the water, or the roots of a tree in the soil. We are deeply, firmly, irrevocably immersed into Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be set apart. I notice finally, as we consider this position to cherish, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Just a note of personal thought here. Paul is writing this letter to these saints set apart in Christ in Philippi. Churches exist first for the community which they are in. God has established Barberville Baptist Church as a ministry point For Waynesville, North Carolina. That is our mission field. And he has set apart each and every one of us here to go out and to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And then to bring people in as they are transformed, more people come in. We go out locally and then we head to the world. As we prayed earlier in our prayer, we want to be a beacon of light and hope to Waynesville, North Carolina. And as we do that, then we spread out to the furthest reaches around the globe. But this is our place of ministry. The church at Philippi, they was their place of ministry. We need to know that we have a place to minister. We need to know that we have a place that God has given us a responsibility for. We need to know that we have a place that God has called us to do His service. So we see not only... An example to follow and a position to cherish. But thirdly, I want you to notice a ministry to care. A ministry to care. He says there at the end of verse 1, including the overseers and the deacons. So Paul is pointing out here the two offices of the New Testament church. Overseers and deacons. Now, notice who he puts first here. He doesn't put the overseers and the deacons first. He puts the saints first. Because what we need to understand is that the offices of the church, overseers, which overseers is used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. You see the term overseer, you see the term bishop, elder, pastor, all of those used interchangeably throughout the New Testament and throughout Paul's writings. They all mean the same thing. It's the under-shepherd of Christ, the pastor of the local church. So whether you see overseer, elder, bishop, it's all referring to that same office of pastor. But the office of overseer or elder or pastor is given to the church for its benefit. The church is not given to the pastor because the pastor is there to serve the body. 
He's there to encourage them and to support them and to teach them and to shepherd them. Matthew Poole, he points out that they are given to oversight, rule, guidance, feeding of the people, preaching of the word, administration of the sacraments and the ordinances of the gospel. That is what the overseers are to do, the elders and the pastors. And then the deacons are responsible for the service aspect in the church. You go to Acts chapter 6, there was a disagreement between the disciples or between in the church about the Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews because the widows were being overlooked in the service ministry of food inside the church. They were serving food to these widows and some were being overlooked. And the disciples got together and they said, listen, God has called us to a specific task and that is the preaching of the word. He's called us to the task of shepherding the flock. He said, so let's select from among us men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom that we can put in charge of this task. And so the office of deacon was established, those who would serve the church. So Paul points these out, that they are a ministry of care for the church. Now, these are the only two offices of the New Testament church. As you read through the Scriptures, you do not find any other offices inside of the church besides the office of elder slash pastor and the office of deacon. Now, culture and time does not change that. And I only say that because as we live in a period of time where people will say, well, you know, we understand how it was in the, in the New Testament, but now it's a lot easier if we do things this way. And let me be clear this morning. Sometimes it may be easier to do things another way, but your two problems will eventually arise. Number one, you're being disobedient to the Lord. And number two, eventually what was easy will sometimes become far more difficult than it would be to just done the hard thing in the first place and do what God called you to do. We find churches who, because they have a desire to do what's easy, don't want to establish their churches the way that the Scripture says that it's supposed to be done. Scripture is very clear that a church should be a plurality of elders. You should have multiple elders who are the shepherding aspect of the church, and then the deacons who come alongside as that service and ministry aspect inside the church to help those. And then other than that, it's the body of Christ who carries out the active ministry of the local congregation. But you have churches who are run by families who are not called and who are not ordained and who are not offices of the New Testament church. You have churches sometimes who are run by deacons deacons acting as uh, de facto elders inside of the church. And then sometimes you have churches who try to invent their own systems of administration. They come up with, um, you know, church councils or, or authoritative bodies, everything they can to try to think of a way to make it easier But if we would just be obedient to God's word, if we'll just do what he says, then things will work out the way that they're supposed to. So, Paul says, to all the saints in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, he's pointing out to the church here the responsibility that he has placed upon those men in that service. Because to be a pastor or an elder... And even to be a deacon is no small task inside the church, not in the sense of granting them absolute authority, but in the sense of the responsibility that those individuals have, not only in relationship to they'll give an account for God for what they do, but also in the life in which they must live. First Timothy says, as a trustworthy statement, if any man desires to be the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. 
He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside so they will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. So it's very clear that the role of the overseer, the elder, the pastor, and the role of the deacon are one who is a high calling to be put to. But not because they're elevated above everyone else, but because God has given them a special responsibility in the shepherding and the care of the church. It is a joy to be a pastor because to serve under King Jesus and to care for his flock is a great responsibility, but it's something that is filled with such joy and happiness. So Paul is reminding them, I've given you these people to care for you. Paul knew he was not going to be able to be with them all the time. He had obviously not been able to be with them all the time because he had had to leave after he was released from prison. But he's reminding them, I have given you those to care for you in my absence. It was a ministry to care. And the final thing I want you to notice here in this passage is a greeting to encourage. Look at verse 2. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul often ended his letters in this way. Two things are highlighted there, grace and peace. And they are two things which cannot be separated. You cannot have peace if you do not have the grace of God. Grace is God's undeserved loving kindness. Grace is God showing His love for us when we did not and do not deserve it. But He gives it to us anyway. God's covenant faithful love for us. He has given us His grace. Grace is the foundation, as one writer puts it, and peace is the result. If we know God's grace, we know His loving kindness for us, then we are granted with this peace and this joy that comes from knowing Him. And when it talks about peace here, Paul's not talking about peace in the, in the way that we often use it uh, as, as citizens in, in a 21st century world. We're not talking about just being calm from disturbance. You know, we use the term peace in talking about wars and when things break out that a peace has come. That just means that there's a calm that has settled on somewhere. People use it in a term, you know, to peace out. It just means to calm down, right? Just be calm about what's going on. But this is not just talking about an inner feeling that we have, but this is talking about a restored fellowship with God on the basis of Christ's work. We have peace with God. Outside of Jesus' grace, outside of Jesus' work in our lives, we do not have peace with God. And God's anger and wrath abides upon us. Do you want to know why a lost person cannot find satisfaction in anything in this world? Because they don't have peace with God. They can pursue all the money all the success, all the fame, all the drugs, alcohol, and sex that this world has to offer. They can do everything that the world tells them. This will make you happy. And they don't have peace. And so they find that it's all miserable. Look back over the last 10 years at the number of high-profile individuals who have taken their own lives or who have flushed their lives away to drugs and alcohol. Why? Because they had everything the world had to offer, right? Everybody knew their name. Everybody looked up to them, respected them, wanted to be them. 
They had money to buy anything they wanted in the world. They could buy bigger houses, bigger cars, planes, travel wherever they wanted. But they come to a place in their life where they abandon all hope because the one thing that they wanted in life was peace. But peace cannot be found outside of grace. Peace cannot be found outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul is reminding them of the glorious good news that they have, that no matter what they're facing, they have grace and peace. Notice what he says there, what? Not from the world, not from your circumstances, not from your abilities. He says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The source of peace and joy and happiness in this world comes through nothing else but through God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Paul is encouraging the church, and as we will see over the coming weeks, of the joy and the happiness that is found in a right relationship with Christ and in living our lives in obedience to Him. Let's pray together. Father, this morning... We thank you for your word, Lord, and in just these two opening verses, Father, how encouraged we are at your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Father, remind us, not just weekly, not just daily, not just hourly, but Father, moment by moment, remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness towards us. Father, remind us that we have been set apart, that we are saints before you. Father, remind us that we have been bought with a price and that we are the slaves of King Jesus. And Lord, fill us with your spirit and your power to go into this world and to be obedient to the task that you have given us as your servants, to take the gospel to a world that desperately needs the truth. Lord, this week, you have given us an opportunity far greater probably than any at any other point in any of our lives in this room today to be able to go to our job and to speak boldly about the truth of the gospel. Because the thing that's going to be on everyone's mouth this week is what happened with Roe v. Wade last week. And Lord, what an opportunity you've given us to shine the light and the truth of Jesus into the darkness, into those circumstances. So Father, help us that you may be glorified, that Christ's name may be praised. And Father, that you receive all the glory. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name.